Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today, I'm with Jacob Schreiber, who you might remember from episode 32 of the Bioinformatics chat, where we uh, talked about avocado. But today, uh, Jacob is my co-host. And uh, Jacob, why don't you introduce our guest today? Yeah, thank you. So today we're going to be talking with Dr. Marinka Zitnik. Dr. Marinka Zitnik received her PhD from the University of Ljubljana and then did a postdoc with Yuri Leskovic at Stanford. She's now an assistant professor of biomedical informatics at the Harvard Medical School. Her research covers a broad range of topics involving the development of machine learning algorithms and the application of such approaches to problems arising in medicine. These topics have included classical methods such as matrix factorization, as you, you know, probably remember a favorite of mine, as well as more modern ones such as graph neural networks. Dr. Zitnik has written that her research vision involves a close integration of data science methods with clinical practice, among other areas of health. Roman and I are delighted to have her on this podcast. Dr. Zitnik, thank you for joining us. Uh, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here today with you. Yeah, so today uh, we're going to be talking about computational drug design. This is a, a research area that I personally think is one of the most directly impactful subfields of computational biology. So I work in an area related to functional genomics and epigenomics. And while I love what I do, I always find that it's several steps removed from, you know, actual human health. If we find that some type of genomic phenomena is interesting, ultimately it requires multiple steps before it can be turned into something that, you know, the general populace finds useful. In contrast, computational drug design, I think, is one of these more directly applicable uh, researchers. In fact, like, findings from my field percol percolate up into the field of computational drug design. Uh, because this is about, this is about using machine learning in order to directly improve people's lives, to try to find drugs for diseases where we currently don't have drugs, and to overall just improve the quality of everybody's life. And so I'm really delighted that we can spend some time talking with somebody who works so closely on these topics. So I thought, you know, a good first question is, what do you think are the biggest open questions in computational drug design? Yeah, so that's really um, a great question in, in, in drug, computational drug design and uh, computational drug development and discovery. It's, it's really a very exciting area of research that has attracted so much attention over the last few years. And primarily that might be because, well, I would say these are, there are two primary reasons that drive this enthusiasm for, for this area of research. One is certainly um, particularly... Uh, a, a, a exciting advances on the machine learning and computational side of things, as well as very large new data sets that make that field accessible to computational scientists and to modern machine learning methods. On the other hand, it's really the fact that getting a drug to the market nowadays takes 12 to 13 years on average. It costs two to three billion dollars uh, and um, and it has very high failure rate. So for drugs in ecology, um, drugs that are tested in first phase of clinical trials, only around 7% of those will get to the approval stage. So there's like, there is this high failure rate for drugs before uh, 
while there are still drug candidates and because they need to go through these multiple steps, multiple phases of the development from preclinical, clinical trials and then approval, post-marketing surveillance analysis, then there, there are so many ways where the processes can fail that at the end, it's very hard and it's really cumbersome, tedious, resource intensive and expensive process to get a new drug to the market. And, and because of that, this is really an ideal situation for, for machine learning, for artificial intelligence methods to assist at essentially every step of this process. So, and, and the very first step is then how to even identify out of the universe of all molecules, how to identify those molecules that might have a certain therapeutic effect down the line. And really at the core, um, of this issue is this question of being able to, if I machine learning language, predict for a given molecule what are its properties. And this, so, and very often this is formulated as a way of first describing a, a molecule through a set of features. Traditionally, the field of chemoinformatics has done that um, through molecular fingerprints. So the way to think of that is that we have every molecule that we describe it. A, a, often a binary vector of say 918 um, uh, numbers that summarize the structure of the molecule, whether it has a particular um, hydrogen ring, uh, how many atoms of the particular types it have. Uh, and then doing that for many molecules, this can be used for uh, as input to train a machine learning model to predict properties of those molecules. And nowadays there are many opportunities that allow us to do that much more efficiently. Um, by using neural differential fingerprints and so on. And this is one core problem, really, really how to identify after the universe of molecular space that is so large that there is no way to experimentally simply go and test each and every molecule. So it really is the direct motivation for computational methods that we need to have in order to be able to prioritize um, this molecular space, essentially come up with prioritized list of molecules that were at the top of that list would hopefully be those that are more likely to be uh, down the line useful for, for for patients. But this is just one core problem that is very early in um, that appears or like that, that appears very, in very early stages of drug uh, development, right? Um, and it's also people think of it in different ways. Whether do we assume that we start with molecules and we want to predict their properties, or do we actually want to think about how can we synthesize a molecule? So we, we would not start with molecules, but we would start with certain properties. We would want to have a molecule with certain properties. How should that molecule look like? That's like another interesting question when we think of this problem in the reverse side. Uh, of, um, but there are now these core problems appear at each and every stage of drug development. Right? When we go to clinical phases, then the question becomes, will a drug be safe for a patient? Um, so it can be really efficacious, right? So nowadays when people are very excited about drug, drug development for COVID-19, like uh, there is a trivial approach to develop a drug for that, which would be, well, the drug will kill the virus. It will also kill the host. Obviously, that's not acceptable way, right? So it needs to be efficacious. So it achieve the desired therapeutic effect. At the same time, it should also be safe. Um, and then all kinds of later, later in clinical stages, questions appear related to, well, the fact that patients, uh, they are not all the, the patients are not 
like homogeneous group of uh, or homogeneous population, so one size does not fit all. How do we take that into account? Um, and, and, and then this question of personalized medicine comes into play, which would be in later stages of drug development. Yeah, you brought up a lot of really interesting questions there. It seems like the some of the more basic ones are just simply like, we have the search space. I see this number like 10 to the 60th possible molecules. I'm not sure where exactly they came from that number, but it seems like um, my laptop probably couldn't search through all of those. Yeah, I was hoping actually you will mention that number, right? So this is the estimate of the size of the molecular space. That in principle, what is the number of distinct molecules uh, that uh, that we can think of? So of course, only a small fraction, a very tiny, tiny fraction of those molecules are those that we currently know how to synthesize or, or chemists know how to synthesize, right? And many of those molecules are not, uh, have no potential or cannot be used as therapeutics. Um, that, however, does not mean that they are not interesting, right? So there's lots of excitement nowadays in polymer chemistry and material sciences to use these chemicals for other kinds of, uh, or things, not necessarily for treating diseases, which might be a separate discussion, right? But of this humongous space that you have mentioned, there is this small number of uh, small, very tiny subset of this large space of drugs, of molecules we can synthesize, and that smaller space of that would be then molecules that could potentially could be uh, um, useful as, as, as drug, right? And even if you, when we would identify such a molecule that would have certain desired effects, in principle, and one would, and then domain experts, biologists and chemists would test that in vitro in cell lines or um, um, down the line model organisms. Additional questions appear, like in what dosages, what would be the treatment regime, what is the strategy of treatment, how it should be drug actually delivered to your body, uh, in, in what way should be admin administered and how should be delivered, and then uh, kind of what part of the body or tissue should um, sh should it um, affect primarily and target. You bring up several really key points there. The first is the search space is, the search space is massive. Maybe it's not exactly 10 to the 60th because we only have a small subset of molecules we can first design and second actually are predicted to have real therapeutic value. But then once we have a molecule that we think has an action, we need to know how do we get it to the correct part in the human body. Those are Those are really good points to bring up. When some of us think of drug design, we think about, you know, really smart people in a lab trying to figure out the molecule that will work. And when that doesn't work, then they go back to the drawing board and then they try to come up with another molecule. But in reality, they're using this, uh, they're using much more of a high throughput method where they're testing thousands or hundreds of thousands of potential drugs to try to find, um, to try to see whether or not any of them have functional activity. Is this an area that you think machine learning could help with? Uh, absolutely. So one way is, so these are a few great points that you that you brought up. One of them is certainly that in addition to exciting advances on machine learning side, there have been lots of progress in the last 20 years on more efficient platforms for high throughput uh, virtual virtual screening of drugs or, or screening of, sorry, virtual screening of molecules um, that then, that, that, is, that is become really efficient and it can scale to much larger set of, molecules than what it was possible just a couple of years ago. So that uh, that creates opportunities, and I think primarily machine learning can help here in, in two ways. So one is, in many ways, but let me mention two ideas that I think are quite exciting. The first one is certainly experimental design. 
sort of and, and here are all questions that would be related to active learning or or questions that would be that that answer would help with decision making in those phases. Sort of what would be the minimal set of experiments one would need to make in order to maximize the yield, whatever that yield would want to be, like the diversity of the molecular space or potentially to see the um, maximize the variation in the functional outcomes and and so on, right? Where we can almost think of. Let's assume we are a company, we have a budget K, whatever that budget might be. It might be the amount of money, it might be um, the time that we have um, or the resources we can spend. And then the question is, well, what are the kind of experiments that we should do given that limited budget? Um, so that's one really exciting part when machine learning can help with this with supporting decision human decision making in these processes. The other part is really once those da large data sets are generated, it's not possible anymore to simply say, oh let me let me open an Excel table or like let, let me let me just simply read in into a small numpy matrix and I will use some classic clustering algorithm that is cubic in computational time complexity and I will just see the patterns, right? And then here is where machine learning can help a lot by reading in those data sets, pulling in additional informations. Large, most of the pharma companies don't have just those experiments, but they have tens, they have large knowledge bases with lots of information about past experience, past experiments, failed experiments. So how can we bring this together to then be able to learn and reason over these data sets? So that would be then using more machine learning, not for designing experiments, but really to be able to prioritize results, data sets generated by those high throughput uh, te technologies, um, integrating those data sets with additional sources information to prioritize out of those many, many thousands or hundreds of, uh, or, or tens of thousands molecules, prioritize them according to those that would, that would be of interest to, um, for, for, for downstream experiments. And so speaking about experimental design, uh, I think that's traditionally been the area of like classical statistics, right? We think of power analysis. Uh, I think there's been a lot of literature written on that. And can you talk about what machine learning, like how is it better and what it can bring uh, to the table here? Yeah, so that's a great point, and I can clarify here perhaps what I had in mind. Um, so there's certainly very a tremendous amount of literature in, in classic experimental design, and, and really lots of research also on experimental design in later stages of drug development, like design of clinical trials. That That's really very important questions that, that many uh, experts in, in healthcare and epidemiology then think about. When, when I was what I had in mind earlier, I had more in mind this idea that is now quite known as automated science. In, in a way where the idea is that within the lab, there are a number of decisions that people need to make, like uh, when designing an experiment, like deciding what would be the experimental protocol, even question of using the robots to move the plates around, which is not uncommon today. So, and, and kind of then, of course, all advances related to robotics are becoming more and more um, useful or exciting here, right? It's, it's really the frontier of research. Um, and it's, it's more about 
I would say here less about the the power analysis directly, but more 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 the, the designing the context of like making the best decisions that would maximize the yield of our readout. Um, where in classically you could potentially formulate that as power analysis, but you could think of it as what we have is really a large space, and then we we kind of think about these problems of influence maximization in a way like what would be um, if I have some limited budget, what would be the points in the space of molecules that I would need to that would be good for me to sample in order to cover as much space as possible, as as large part of the molecular space as possible. And now this, of course, needs to be defined in a very precise manner. What does it mean? What is the kind of information that we want to care about? What are the biases that a particular drug developer, developer cares about? So most of the drug companies have certain priority areas. Like they are really specialized in developing drugs for diabetes or oncology or some other disease areas. So they are primarily then care about, um, or, or about those things that immediately relate to them, right? So it's really then in order to really deploy these algorithms, think about well, what are all the biases that one would need to encode in the models in order to be most useful for um, domain experts, to use those as tools that can supplement uh, their decision making. Yeah, those are, those are really interesting things to think about that I was involved a little bit in this idea of automated science uh, earlier in my PhD, that the the idea there was that when something goes wrong in the lab, trying to figure out the precise component that failed. And I think that being able to link up um, all of these steps is a it's, a, it's a really interesting idea. And I'm, I'm starting to see more and more groups do it. It kind of reminds me of a, of a trend that's happening in machine learning as well, where we in, in machine learning, we have these models like logistic regression or neural networks. And we have kind of this lore about how to build a neural network that, you know, you have your dense layer and then you have your batch normalization layer and then you have your activation layer or something. And these are all predefined components that have been introduced in their own respective papers. But there's been some work recently. Um, I think that uh, researcher Quark Lee released this paper, Alpha ML Zero, uh, where they were trying to learn machine learning models from basic operations. And it reminds me a lot of what people are trying to do with these drug design uh, components, where rather than viewing the end goal as the final problem, you're trying to build the entire procedure from scratch. Yes, uh, that's a very uh, interesting idea, right? So, yeah, there's lots of research in machine learning where people are thinking about um, archi neural architecture search, right? So, so instead of more traditionally thinking about designing a neural architecture by essentially sitting down or going to the whiteboard and think about the best architecture you can come up with, right? So this would be, this is almost like second order feature engineering, right? So it's kind of, in a way, one could argue that some would, well, think about these architectures would be similar, is, is similar to manually engineering features, which is what people have done before the before the era of representation learning on graphs, on language, on, and, 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 and images, and so on. And there is lots of excitement about neural architecture search. Like, how can we find the best architecture that would uh, that would solve our task at hand? Um, and th there is a clear analogy, at least at the analogy level, we can we can draw th this analogy between 
this idea of moral architecture search and potentially thinking of what are atomic operations in a certain particular stage of drug development or a certain experimental setup. And if one would define those, be able to define those atomic operations, then because the atoms are defined, then we can think of like what would be good strategies, what would be good workflows uh, that would um, um, get us with a minimal amount resource, minimal amount of resources, and minimal amount of time, and we will get the results or data sets that we would want to have. Um, so it's it's very. I, I, in order to be able to do that, right, it's really one need to have very close collaborations uh, with, or, or like as a machine learning or person or computer scientist, one needs to have really close collaboration with those people that are working in these areas directly. So because uh, it's it's quite hard to think of it just um, by, by by sitting in like next to computer a computer and like speculating about ideas. It's really one need to talk and communicate it, communicate with drug developers, with chemists, biologists here, learn about all the processes and and come up with a, essentially a new language that would be allow that would make these processes computable that would be amenable to computational analysis in some way that is kind of machine readable, right? So that we can kind of say, these are the atoms, we can read them, and then and, and then once we have them, they are these pieces of computable information that we can integrate, bring together, think about what is the order that would make most sense, um, and for each component, what would be the parameters that would one need to use, where those parameters could be essentially parameters of an experiment, wet lab experiment. Yeah, it uh, it occurs to me while you're talking that the are you familiar with the company Incitro, founded by Dr. Daphne Collar? Yes, I'm very much familiar with that. It's a very exciting uh, company, and I think they are doing great work. Uh, they are one of those companies that really, um, in my personal opinion, right. So they are thinking really seriously about that. And when I about drug development and discovery, and what I mean by that is that. Um, Sometimes they, there is the struggle if we think that either machine learning will solve everything or biology will just solve everything. So their approach is not necessarily like that. So they kind of are thinking very deeply about drug development on both fronts. And when I mean by both fronts, I mean hiring really amazing people that are great to do machine learning, statistics, uh, computational analysis that can think about um, standardizing, optimizing, uh, learning and reasoning over the data that are generated, and at the same time, really building labs that can generate the data. The, and, 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 and then those people work next to each other. Um, and to me, that seems a, a, a really good strategy, potentially more promising that um, I, I'm focusing on either of the two aspects or, or like solely uh, the experimental or solely computational aspect, which is potentially much harder. But there are also, but but either those aspects, particular computational might be also viable for other problems, not necessarily problems so early in drug development discovery phase. But when we think about topics that we might touch later in these conversations, like drug repurposing or, or working with surveillance data or data about approved drugs, thinking about how to um, kind of integrate information about therapeutics with uh, user level or customer level data. Uh, um, sort of those are, this, this, those are really emerging areas where I think there's lots of opportunity where 
even if, if someone is purely computational scientist can can kind of also make lots of impact. Yeah, I think that if you go to if you go to a conference like one of these top tier machine learning conferences, you hear about how you know, oh well, drug design that's just you know that can be solved trivially by GANs or some other type of generative model. It's just get just give it data and it'll solve this problem. It's it's nothing yes. special. And then you go to something like ISMB and they say, oh, you don't need machine learning. You just do a single cell experiment and you can, you know, get all of the drug data that you need from there. But I, I completely agree with you that it's really going to require efforts from both sides. And that one of the exciting things about Citro is that they do take these combinations of people from both sides and that they try to automate this whole process where they generate their own data and then they use the data and the insights that they get from that set in order to generate their next batch of data. And it's kind of like a real active learning thing, not just on an algorithmic side, but on the whole pipeline of developing a drug. Yeah, so these are really great points that you mentioned, because I've been thinking so much about uh, these uh, questions so since I go to all the major top ML conferences and then major comp comp computational biology or even biology conferences. And there is this dichotomy, but I would say more and more people are enlightened from both sides, right? So I think as com computer scientists, we should not think of achieving an AOC score of that this might look like near perfect on a particular benchmark data set. It's really far, far away from declaring the problem to be solved. Um, and on the other hand, like simply calculating t-test is also not the most powerful use of computational resources that are available to us nowadays. So it's, it's, it's really we need to kind of be humble and appreciate the complexity of science on the other side. And, and in particular, in, in kind of drug development prediction tests, there, there are many. We touched upon a few of those related to drug design. There are some tasks where it seems that problems are nearly solved. Like when we train our machine learning models on benchmark data sets, accuracy is very high or almost perfect, or AUC score would be in the 90s. But then when we transfer when, or when we think about how can we deploy these models now in real world practice, right? So right now I'm working in a couple of projects where we are deploying graph neural networks for the problem of drug repurposing for COVID-19. All of a sudden we see well, one would expect if the accuracy on benchmark data set is near perfect, that this will really be tremendous yield on, on experimental data, but it does not necessarily lead to such thing. So why is that the case? Often the case is because sometimes these models make, make predictions that are kind of trivial. So what I mean by that, so a trivial prediction would be essentially, might be something like a hypothetical example would be when, um, when drugs are structurally very similar or, uh, or the way they are administered, in many ways, they're very, very similar. But from the machine learning standpoint, they are separate entities. So they are separate objects in our matrix or separate nodes in our graphs and so on. Um, and because of that, one is in training set, the other drug might be in test set. But, and we hope that when we train the model, it will generalize well. But at the end, it might just what has we achieved is the model has just memorized that, hey, these two drugs are actually quite similar. So the best way for me to do would be just to make, to memorize what I see in the training data and make the same prediction. So people are now starting thinking about what are better ways to split our data set into train validation and test set in such a way that test set would be more indicative of real world challenges. 
which is exciting because it has brought like lots of interesting problems such as transfer learning, meta learning, learning uh, think about inductive generalization to to generalize to have models that can generalize and make predictions for molecules or for phenotypes diseases that the model has never seen before like there it, all good molecules or phenotypes in the training set are very very different from what the model is tasked or asked to do in the test set and and sometimes then measuring performance in this way is much more indicative of realistic situation because oftentimes experts such as biologists and chemists who have decades of experience they can make those trivial inferences. And, and that's not so impressive to them if you basically say, oh, so here are basically two drugs that are more or less the same. So, so far you've been using drug A and now I recommend you use drug B. They would say, of course, I, I did that already because it's obvious to them, right? So they're much more interested in those non-trivial inferences um, where we would pull something out of a hat and they would say, oh, here's my new prediction and not be able to say that something is just great because it's great by itself because people will not trust it that's a major question here right so we are talking about really expensive experience experiments we're talking about committing to a particular molecule then that will might um have lots of implications for many people for for like parts of the company so being able to simply say this is the prediction that this black box model has made i have great AUC score will not be enough so how can we then think about providing explanations? Um, and <laughs> this is another separate topic, right? But we've been thinking a, a bit about how can we then provide explanations for our predictions using counterfactual reasoning or essentially allowing the domain experts to ask the machine learning model, what if question? Basically, domain expert can say, oh, here's the molecule that, that the model predict. It will have some mutagenic effect on a particular um, uh, in the particular environment with a bacteria. And the domain expert can say, what if I would change this particular bot? Would the model still make this prediction? What if I would change some other bond? Would the model still make this prediction? So these what if statements are, can be then computationally operationalized as counterfactual. So you mentioned your work on uh, repurposing drugs for uh, COVID-19 and uh, just to make this conversation a, a little bit more concrete, maybe you can talk about how that actually looks like. So do you have a mechanistic model and you're searching for molecules that bind specific like proteins or RNA, or is it like a more abstract, as you say, black box machine learning problem? How do you formulate that? Okay, yeah, so that's a great question. Let me first define drug repurposing. Um, so, so far we talked mostly about problems and questions that uh, that appear in earlier stages of drug development. So when, when people are trying to identify a new molecule that is not yet approved as, uh, in, in any way um, by FDA or other agencies in other countries, so it's not yet a drug, it, it's a molecule, right? So um, that is, that's great, but uh, there's an alternative. As I said, this process can be is really expensive. It takes a decade or so. So people have early on uh, started, got an idea about what if we would take a drug that is already on the market and we would expand its indication. So we would uh, repurpose it for a new disease. 
This is particularly exciting nowadays in the context of COVID-19, where the goal is how can we expedite drug development and discovery of therapeutics as much as we can? And it seems at least intuitively that the best strategy or one strategy to do that would be to first look at drugs that are already on the market. Because those drugs that are already there, we know that they are approved. They went through clinical trials. They are safe for patients, or at least in some way we have some understanding of side effects. So we then start asking, if we take those drugs, they might be oncology drugs, they might be diabetes drugs, they might be antivirals. Can we use any of those, that, those drugs for our new disease or for the disease of interest? Most famous example of drug repurposing is Viagra. So Viagra is, was actually not developed initially for what is today now known for. It was developed as a, uh, as a drug for heart diseases. Um, and it was really it, it this surprising observation of what it can um, uh, lead to um, was revealed during clinical trials. And, and, and then that gave ideas of how could that drug be used for other purposes. The challenges or opportunity for computational methods is then that um, most of these drug repurposing findings were uh, serendipitous. So they were cons- uh, they were the result of uh, they were not systematic done system done systematically. They were results of some surprising findings. So in the drug repurposing problem, we think about how can we approach it systematically. So the machine learning we develop machine learning approaches for that, and there's many people who are thinking about drug repurposing, and they go those models that are used for drug repurposing that would predict in the simplest case the prediction test would be given a drug and some of its known uses that we might know what the drug is currently used for. What would be other diseases that this drug would treat? So essentially, for a drug, give me a ranked list of diseases that this drug could be useful for, in addition to those diseases that it already treats. This is a very simplistic way of defining this, uh, um, but that would be the core problem. Now, some people are approaching it from the mechanistic standpoint. So what you try to understand and model computationally is the mechanism of action of the drug. Try to understand what are the proteins that uh, the the drug binds to. Essentially, it influences when it uh, enters human cells, how the drug change, changes the behavior of those proteins, what are then pathways, functional and metabolic pathways that those target proteins, the proteins that are targeted by the drug are associated with, and how do those pathways relate to various aspects of, various phenotypic aspects of the disease or, or current knowledge about the causes of a disease of interest. So we are approaching that perhaps from a slightly different way, more from the, at the abstract level uh, or kind of black box type of model um, where we use all existing drugs that are currently on the market and, and uh, the, their indication information, meaning how do they map to diseases. And then we construct large knowledge graphs So we bring together information about mechanisms of action, about target proteins. How do those proteins interact in human cells? Um, As well as information about um, symptoms of diseases, side effects of drugs. And then we we develop models. Most commonly, those are representation learning models or graph neural networks that can operate on those knowledge graphs 
and then learn over the data that is there um, and make predictions about um, existing drugs and um, their potential indications, um, as well as these new diseases for which no drugs exist there yet, such as um, COVID-19, but where we think about what drugs could be most useful for, uh, use, helpful for those diseases. That's, that's really um, that's really interesting. And something that occurred to me both with this answer and when we were talking previously about um, basically how to validate these drugs is that one of the issues is that there are so many combinations. And so when you use measurements like, you know, area under the position recall curve or accuracy, that they're likely to be dominated by this very large number of false potential interactions. Because when you're trying to repurpose a drug, there are so many drugs that are out there and there are so many potential um, diseases that they could be applied to. Are there special considerations that are taken to account for this massive class imbalance? Yeah, there are a number of challenges here, right? So, um, so one way to think about this is certainly um, that diseases are not independent of each other, right? So we have groups of diseases that also have similar underlying biology. So one would want to take that into account some way. So either through regularization in, in machine learning model, by saying that there are some uh, parameters that would need, that we would encourage a machine learning model to estimate them in similar way for diseases that are related to each other, or by using the multitask view of the or formulating the problem as a, as a multitask learning problem where we think of every disease being a separate task or disease class being a separate task and then we are trying to um, learn the models well for one task and then transfer the model to another task where the amount of the information we can transfer from one test to the other would be determined based on the similarity between diseases or based on direct utility towards improving the accuracy score um, there is that's more on the disease space, right? Similar similar things are happening on the drug space, where there is lots of imbalance in the sense that there there might be certain drugs that are approved and are used for many many diseases, or and often they don't treat the cause of the disease, but they treat some symptoms of the disease. So then, being able to disentangle those effects is quite important. Um, but in the same way, very challenging because it requires also to get high quality data sets that often um, can be to some extent obtained from public resources, but require also very lots of thoughtful uh, analysis and pre-processing uh, to think about, well, whether a link or, or association between a drug and disease is indicative of really cause, treating the cause of the disease or treating the symptom of the disease. And because such knowledge is really useful, if you know that, well, a particular um, drug treats a symptom, or, or perhaps a better example would be if a particular drug has a side effect, like it increases the heart rate. So let's, let me give a very hypothetical, silly example. But let's say uh, a side effect of drug A would be that it increases heart rate. Um, so that might be really bad for, for, for or might be quite bad for for the diseases that this drug is used for, and patients would need to be careful. But you might think of having some that of of a hypothetical other disease, where having a drug that would increase heart rate would be exactly the desired effect. 
So then this immediately gives ideas of for the or creates a, a repurposing opportunity for that drug A, right? Or potentially there is already a drug for disease A and that drug leads to increased heart rate. And now we have another drug that a side effect decreases heart rate. So what perhaps we could do, we could pre prescribe both drugs to patients. So that's really a very uh, exciting area of research that's emerging now where we think about, well, you might, there are at the end of the day, not so many approved drugs in light of the, our, the beginning of our conversation where we talked about this huge, massive space of molecules. So, but, so there are questions, how can we increase the space of approved drugs? And one way to do that is by looking at combinations of drugs, because then we, we very quickly, we think of 5,000, 10,000 approved drugs in the US market. But if you look at combinations of those, even pairwise combinations, that is like 5,000 just two, and which is already much more. So it creates many more opportunities as well for repurposing, where we think about those nonlinear effects where potentially either one drug in a combination will treat one aspect of the disease, another drug will treat some other aspect. And for that, what Roman has mentioned before, knowing the mechanism of action, having mechanistic models is really useful. Because if you know that the disease, many co the complex diseases are multifactorial in nature, they have, is, they're not caused by alterations in a single gene or a sin even a single pathway, right? So one can think of then having this combinatorial therapeutic strategy um, where different drugs would um, focus on different aspects of the disease or they would compensate for each other for the negative effects that the, uh, one drug would compensate for the negative effects of the other drug and all things like that. Yeah, so I, th that's, I think that's a really in important point to to think about as well. So it seems like when we've been talking about uh, computational drug design, we started off and we talked about the fact that there was this massive search space. And we discussed about how machine learning models can be used to try to reduce this search space into something that's much more manageable. Uh, that these one of the things that we can do is uh, augment these high throughput approaches by giving a more informative subset of drugs that you could look at. Then we talked about how rather than just trying to manage the search space, that another problem in computational drug design is specifically designing the drug itself, that you can try to build these machine learning models that predict the structure of the drug instead of simply trying to limit the search space. And we've been talking a little bit now about a third problem, which is trying to repurpose drugs because there are significant barriers to getting a drug approved in the first place. And so if you can take a drug that's already approved and simply apply it in a new setting, that can make it, you know, that can help people faster. Because rather than having to go through this whole process, you already know a lot about it. But it seems like now we're trying to get into, we're talking about this fourth, um, we're talking about this fourth problem, which is that sometimes you want to take combinations of drugs in order to try to affect a, certain, a, a specific single disease, or sometimes you have multiple underlying conditions and you need to take multiple drugs. But the interactions among these drugs are not particularly well known. You want to know, like, if I'm giving you this one drug for heart disease and this other drug for some other condition, is there going to be some bad side effect for it? And this is actually a reason that I was first aware of your work, because you published this great paper in bioinformatics about trying to predict what's called polypharmacy side effects. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that work? Of course. Uh, so thank you for the summary of our discussion so far. I think that's a really great summary. So um, 
What polypharmacy refers to is it refers to the situation when patient takes multiple drugs at the same time to treat complex or coexisting diseases. So the statistics in the U.S. is such that um, around 46% of people ages 65 years or more take more than five drugs at the same time. It's not actually uncommon to encounter patients that take 20 drugs to treat a complex disease or multiple underlying or multiple conditions, as you have mentioned. So that's really important to know. Why? Because in, during clinical trials, when the drug is being tested before it's put on the market, more or less, it's impossible to test for all combinations um, and, and, and a priori envision, well, what are other drugs that the patients will take concurrently with this new drug that we are new drug that we are currently developing. Because of that, that essentially means that the drug is developed, it's approved, and then we are do, we have this kind of real world experiments, right? When when, when do, the patients go, they are sick, they go to doctors. Doctors prescribe another drug, a new drug to patients, and patient already has a pharmacy of five drugs, which would mean now it has six drugs. Um, so. And the problem with that is that a larger number of drugs can lead to unwanted side effects due to those drug-drug interactions. And it's, just, it's impossible to see those side effects during clinical trials because one cannot test for any, every possible combination of drugs, let alone combinations of five drugs or six drugs or more, right? And I said there are many patients that actually majority or half of the population or specifically elderly who have taken many drugs uh, at the same time. And this is a, quite an important problem because it creates challenges for individual. Um, so for 15% of the US population uh, are affect, people are affect, affect, that are affected by unwanted side effects. And this, this is a burden for individual, it's a burden for healthcare system because now one needs to treat those side effects. It leads to prescribing more drugs and there is this notion of prescribing cascade where essentially like patients just go from one doctor to the other and every doctor just adds to their individual pharmacy. So because it's very hard to, to kind of remove and say, well, this is the drug you took so far, but now you should not take it anymore. Which, how to even decide about, think about that, right? Because a patient might visit a specialist who's a specialist in brain and really doesn't, or, or is not a specialist in heart diseases. So he would probably is not most qualified to say what heart drug the patients who stop taking. Um, so it's it's a challenging problem. So in in this study and in this paper, we 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 have think we have started thinking about how can we a first identify for a given combination of drugs what side effects might it uh, might it have in patients where those side effects cannot be attributed to either drug alone in that combination. Um, and um, that's what the paper was about. And since then we have lots of lots of follow-ups and we started asking different questions and so on. Um, but it, it was really exciting for us. And I liked it a lot because it's, it's, a, it's a problem where clearly computational methods are absolutely needed. It's, it's not kind of artificial made up example or a problem where we say, oh, of course, we already have good experimental or clinical strategies and protocols for doing that. It's, it's really impossible to in practice to have them because no matter the size or the number of clinical trials, we will not be able to test all those 
combinations of drugs and test them for safety or test them for repurposing opportunities. So can we use computational in silico methods, in silico modeling to identify um, combinations of drugs that are unsafe for patients? Can we identify those that might be repurposing opportunities? Um, can we use them to design personalized treatments and so on? This would be kind of all follow-up questions from that study. So I, I think that those are, those are some really interesting points that you are bringing up the idea that once a person gets prescribed their first drug, that the probability that they get prescribed other drugs just increases, not just because, you know, they have an underlying condition, but because people are kind of, doctors are somewhat reluctant to stop prescribing medicines that have already been prescribed and haven't shown to be dangerous. I think that also just in people's regular lives that they end up taking more, maybe not a, like, they, they end up taking more things than they think they are. Uh, like, for instance, I'm lactose intolerant. And so normally I will take lactase, which is, I don't know if it's a, it's, it's exactly a drug, but it is certainly a protein. Uh, it's an enzyme. And then there'll be some nights when I'll also take acetaminophen. And so if suddenly, now suddenly I'm taking two things. These, both of these molecules are considered to generally be safe, but we don't know that all of their interactions with every drug that the FDA approves are benign. Uh, that, you know, people might also take other things, like if they take Tums or certain other things, that that number can go up very high. And this number of combinations, it's not just pairwise, that it might be once you start taking three or four things that they have some type of, you know, unexpected side effect. And so I think, like you were saying, that this type of work, not only is it a real problem, it's a really important problem for people to be able to solve. Yes, it, it, it is. And in particular, like, when we say drug interaction, what does that even mean, right? So what we what we mean by that is that we have, in the simplest case, just two drugs, A and B. And the effect when somebody and a person takes A and B together is different than what we would expect when a when a person takes either A alone or B alone. So so ex our expectation is we have two drugs they act independently, as as you mentioned in the, in, in your case, right? or you have two drugs or a vitamin and a drug, right? They would act independently. And so the expected effect would be exactly the union or the addition of the individual effects. But when the observed effect is not really equal to the union or addition or um, kind of the, the, the multiplication of independent effects, when there is a difference between what we observe and see when a patient takes the, the combination of drugs and what we would expect to see, if there would be no interference um, kind of between drugs in a combination. The difference here, the larger the difference, the greater the interaction of drugs. And it can be a positive way, it can be a negative way. You were also mentioned, make, make, made a great case for another thing, which is we, we, not, we don't necessarily need to have a very limited view of what drugs are, right? So in principle, every food can be thought of a drug, as a, like, or, or food ingredients can be thought of as drugs. They are just taken, taken in different quantities or in different ways. So then this creates lots of um, questions about the interactions between food and drugs, not only between drugs or within the drug space. And there are more or less a few anecdotal, anecdotal examples, like what happens if you eat lemon or, or like take 
or lemons or grapefruits or oranges with certain drugs. You should not be doing that. Uh, or potentially you might want to do that, right? And those are due to drug-drug in interactions between food and drug, right? And which is a very much unexplored space. Um, and we have just started looking at interactions within the drug space. Like there, 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 there's some painkillers that you shouldn't be taking while you drink alcohol, right? That's like a classic example of you should modify the foods that you eat uh, when considering certain drug combinations. That's a That's a really great point I hadn't really thought of before. But certainly people who have allergies to food would consider, you know, some type of uh, food to be drugs that are going awry in their body. Yes. And in, in, the, term, in the literature, people refer to these situations as contraindications. Um, either when a patient takes already one drug, he should not be prescribed another drug or particular, particular other drug because it might interfere with the first drug. And, and it's similar. And, and these cases, examples that you mentioned, would be similar, but in the context of alcohol or certain types of food and so on. Do we have some empirical evidence uh, about how frequent these interactions are between uh, mostly unrelated drugs? Like how how common is this? That's a great question. So, and it's um, it's more or less an open research. Uh, question. So the way people are currently estimating that, including us, um, is primarily looking at um, one resource, which is FDA National Adverse Event Reporting System. So this is a database that is hosted by FDA. It's a database where um, that contains reports of clinicians from around the U.S. Um, where patient go, patients go to clinicians, they go to hospitals or doctors and report unwanted side effects. Clinicians write patient reports and they submit those reports to FDA. And you can imagine patients, doctors from all around the US, they submit those reports and there's lots of data aggregation going on at FDA. And then these that reports are then integrated in that national adverse event reporting system. And what we are doing then is looking at that system and try to understand whether a particular side effect is reported surprisingly often. Right. So relative to the number of cases one sees for that side effect for other drugs, how often that side effect is also seen for a particular drug that we're currently modeling. Um, that often yields scores known as PRR scores. So proportional reporting ratios, which essentially is a ratio between how often do we see a side effect in a particular in a particular drug. Relative to background, which would be how often do we decide do we see that side effect with other drugs, um, and the higher this ratio, the more surprising or the is the, the or more significantly often we see the side effect to be associated with drug, and so that's how we often estimate uh, or how we estimate polypharmacy side effects, how we estimate side effects associated with drug combinations um, using surveillance data. Uh, so data that um, is about drugs that are already approved on the market. There are several efforts uh, in large biomedical institutes, like Broad Institute has a drug repurposing hub as part of that effort. They are also designing drug interaction screens where for some number of drugs, they um, administer them to they administer individual drugs as well as combinations of drugs to cell lines or 
most often to cell lines or to different experimental platforms, and then measure um, essentially the the, uh, the outcome. Um, so readouts can be essentially how many cells will survive um, when an, a single drug is administered or when two drugs are administered at the same time, right? And simply using that principle of drug-drug interaction that we talked about before, what we see versus what we would expect to see if there would be no interaction, um, one can then identify drug-drug interactions in the lab. Uh, however, that's only possible for a small number of drugs, right? Even if you took of, think of like 100, couple of hundreds of drugs, and looking only at parents' combinations, that could be a uh, like couple of hundred, 500, choose two combinations of drugs. Let alone thinking about the dosages um, of those drugs, which would further complicate the, the, this reasoning. But to answer very briefly the, then the question that Roman asked is, uh, we don't necessarily ha we ha don't have good estimates on uh, how often do we see those side side effects that are due to drug drug interactions. In many cases, it's really often to even disentangle if that side effect is really due to drug drug interactions. Might it be a symptom of another disease or or not? Right. And and so far, as you can imagine, the interest mostly goes towards most severe side effects. Also, right. Because if the side effect is nausea, but that drug combination really works well for treating cancer, one might tolerate nausea. But the side effect is a sarcoma, when one would treat allergy, that's something one would not tolerate, right? Or like, it's a completely different mindset. So then lots of research would be just, when realizing that that might happen in a significant way, one, one would put all resources into uh, investigating the severe side effect. Yeah, so I thought that those are those are some really interesting points. In the model that you were proposing called Decagon, one of the things I really liked about it was that rather than just considering considering drug-drug interactions by themselves, taking all these known interactions and trying to predict all of the other ones, what you also do is you try to graft this network of known drug-drug interactions onto a network of known protein-protein interactions. Because the the number of known protein-protein interactions is generally much larger, but also that the mechanism of action for these drugs is probably going to be similar if they target similar sets of proteins. Do you want to talk, talk a little bit more about what inspired you to do that and what the benefit you saw was? Yes. So um, indeed in that uh, project, the way we formulated it is by not using only information on existing drug-drug interactions and use that solely to predict new drug interactions, but to take into account the way the drug drugs work by encoding information on what proteins do they target and how do those proteins interact with each other. So how do effects of drugs propagate throughout the underlying PPI network, uh, so protein-protein interaction network, starting from the proteins that are directly targeted by individual drugs and then uh, we see those network effects. The design choice for that was primarily comes from existing research on combinatorial research that has found out that protein-protein uh, interaction connectivity and patterns um, is really different for drugs that interact versus drugs that do not interact. So you can intuitively, an immediate question would be, well, one could say, well, if we know that two drugs interact, why do why do they interact? Are they essentially hitting the same protein, and they are both hitting the same protein? So, they, they there might be like 
why is the effect and that somehow non-linearly can be seen in manifests itself in the form of drug-drug interaction. So prior research has shown that uh, if we think of representing every drug as a, as a subgraph of protein-protein interaction, that network that is defined on proteins that are targeted by the drug, then we can look at how far away are different drugs from each other in the protein-protein interaction network. And that proximity or distance in the underlying protein interaction network between pairs of drugs is useful and has is informative, indicative of whether two drugs will interact or not. It is not as simple as simply saying, well, if the Jacquard similarity between two sets of proteins, say protein targets of drugs A and B, is high, this will lead to drug interaction. Yes, no. If it would be so easy, then one would not essentially need much like complicated machine learning representation learning algorithms. But there, there are these intricate notions that tell us, well, depending on how, where in the protein interaction network target, drug targets reside, are they located, located in, from both, are all targets from, from drugs A and B located primarily in one patch of the network or one region of the protein interaction network? And they are relatively close. Um, Having that information is really beneficial for predicting drug-drug interactions. Since that has been known before, we wanted to encode that, those principles directly in the model. And the way we make them computationally um, feasible or amenable to computational analysis is by thinking of a heterogeneous network representation, as you defined, through protein, network, protein interaction network and drug targets, and then learning uh, effectively embeddings or, or efficient representations for drugs that would uh, capture the topology of their protein targets and where in the protein interaction networks those targets are, what are other proteins that are in the neighborhood, local interaction neighborhood of those drug targets, um, and then combining those effects of individual drugs into joint effects of pairwise uh, pairs of drugs, which allowed us to make predictions about side effects for pairs of drugs. Right. You brought up this great point about how one of the naive things you could do before machine learning is just look at the, you know, does this drug interact with the same set of proteins as this other drug? Therefore, you know, it's probably the same thing. Not only does machine learning let you refine this, um, in the set, in the sense that, uh, it can automatically figure out what the size of this set should be, uh, whether or not this change is based on the different composition, but that it lets you basically assign likely side effects to proteins. And so if a drug interacts with a similar protein, it's not just the number of proteins. It's saying this protein is associated with inflammation. Therefore, if your drug is targeting it, you're likely to have a side effect related to that. Yeah, that's a great point that you're bringing up. So one of the most exciting aspects of that study, at least for me, was that we were trying to make predictions that are as close to patients as possible. So what does that mean? More classically, the, air, the research field of drug interaction prediction is mostly concerned with predicting synergy scores. Synergy scores are typically scalar estimates. So given a pair of drugs, there is a scalar, a single estimate that is often called synergy score, which is a quantifier of drug-drug interactions. Drug-drug interaction often determined uh, in experimental wet lab research through experiments that we mentioned before, 
when when there is a cell line group of cells that where we add one drug or pairs of drugs and then we look what are the differences in the readings so here what we wanted to do is can we move beyond that or like can we what can, what are what can we do that would allow us to make inferences about drug-drug interactions in the patient space. And in the patient space, that would mean that we can say not only does those two drugs will interact, but what would, how will they phenotypically clinically manifest? And that would mean that our goal is simply not to say, I have drugs A and B, predict the likelihood that they will interact, predict the probability or the, um, or the synergy score that they will interact, but predict the type of side effect. In the study, we had around 1,000 types of distinct side effects. Predict the type of side effect that uh, is through which the, this interaction will manifest in patients, most likely. There are a number of in, interesting small observations that we made. Of course, because we, the, the, the way described, is described in the paper primarily uh, operated on molecular level data. So as you said, protein interactions, mechanisms of action, drug target information, um, symptom descriptions, description of molecular structure, and so on. We were able to much more accurately predict side effects that we think are more molecular based on um, genomics or, or, or essentially uh, molecular events or are determined by molecular events and are not so much impacted necessarily by environment or lifestyle or diet of patients. This is certainly something that, of course, makes lots of sense, even that the data, input data to train the model was primarily molecular data. Then the side effects that we are able to predict quite well and or really well are also those that we think of them being more molecularly determined. So when you say side effects, it has this sort of negative connotation. So is that just limited to negative side effects or does that include these potentially positive interactions? Yeah, so that's a great question. So in the Decagon paper, we are kind of our, our thinking there was side effects are bad. Those those are unwanted side effects. Uh, the model itself, however, does not have does not any nowhere in the mathematical formulation of the model or objective function. This is encoded as as explicitly bad phenotype. So it's just the language that we typically think of. Those are phenotypes, and we typically think of them as unwanted, undesired side effects. But since you're bringing that up right now, we have a couple of projects in the lab, one particular in the context of ALS, which is a disease for which no good treatments exist, where we are actually have adapted the decagon to the settings where we think of those unwanted side effects actually be desired effects that we want to achieve with ALS. It's basically repurposing with drug combinations that where we are looking of, are there so we already know what are side effects of individual drugs, and there are not many good repurposing opportunities there. But if we would combine there the side of individual drugs, with, would we see any surprising effects that would be in, in, in the, in, with our collaborators really relevant for ALS? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. In the study, we mostly focused on, we, we thought of side effects. Those are unwanted, bad things that we want to get rid of. But uh, you can have a completely opposite mindset when you say, well, unwanted side effects are additional phenotypes that now, now we are able to generate. We know how to generate them. The way to do them is to prescribe drugs A and B together in some form, right? Um, so sometimes they might be actually desired effects and, and open therapeutic opportunities. Right. You mentioned earlier the idea that um, 
in some contexts that increasing blood pressure might be bad, but in other contexts, increasing blood pressure might be exactly what you wanted. Mm-hmm. Yes, that would be a good example. Well, as we're talking about side effects here, uh, so the model relies on grafting this drug network on top of a protein-protein interaction network. But one of the other things that this model uses are the side effects of individual drugs by themselves. And I thought that I was a particularly interesting aspect of the paper, and I was wondering, basically, how well do how well do side effects for drugs by themselves predict how well uh, predict these types of polypharmacy side effects? If you know that drug A has side effect X and drug B has side effect Y, does that give you any information as to what might happen when you combine drugs A and B? That's a great question, and it turned out it does not give us that much information. The most we can get out of there is then if their both drugs are associated with the same side effect, it's very, very likely. It's more like it's it's more likely than what would expect by pure chance that that side effect will transfer to drug combination. Uh, but it's much harder to be able to predict an, a new side effect that is not associated with any individual drug, but it's associated with drug combination. So the reason why, and that and that is of great of most interest. The reason why we included in the Decagon model information on side effects of individual drugs was primarily to prevent the model to make trivial predictions, or, or essentially to say the best thing for me, or like in the context of the model, would be simply to memorize what I see for individual drugs and just say, well, the same thing will happen. This is some. This would. This is not really polypharmacy side effect, right? Side effect that we already know happens with is associated with one drug and we see it in drug combination, not with the higher, but not in a more severe way, meaning more often or uh, with higher severity score, that is something we would not count as positive or like correct prediction. It, 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 it is prediction of, or essentially memorization of side effects of individual drugs, but it's not really polypharmacy side effect. Right, that makes a lot of sense. So you're saying that... Um... In the context of including it within these grafted networks, you saw much more of a benefit of talk of seeing the uh, benefit. You saw a lot more benefit from including the side effects for individual drugs in the context of this whole model, rather than thinking about them by themselves. Yes, correct. And we, we in order to demonstrate it, we did ablation studies, which essentially what it means is to remove uh, one component of the model or one data type. Uh, at a time and retrain the model on the reduced data set and see how that affects performance, overall performance of the model and performance of the model uh, split by edge types or side effect types. And based on that, we were able to get some understanding into what data sets are most useful for prediction. So it turns out that it's really important to be able to integrate information on protein-protein interaction networks, which is not so surprising given lots of fundamental biological research that has been done before in the context of drug interactions where people were looking at Jacquard similarity scores that we mentioned before, or simply thinking about what is the average shortest path length in the protein interaction network between two sets of drug targets. That was really useful. Um, And the second thing that was really useful that I want to mention is this knowledge of essentially knowing what are other types of side effects that um, a particular combination of drug is already associated with. So essentially, how can we transfer information from one side effect to the other? 
And here it was really useful to recognize that side effects are not independent of each other. Many side effects were those, for example, that might affect a particular organ system. They might affect cardiovascular system. So then knowing for other drugs or for the drugs that we're currently looking at, that it already has some side effects associated with cardiovascular system, or that there are there is a similar combination of drugs that has similar drug targets and in associated with some other type of side effect that affects cardiovascular system. That was really helpful for us to predict or for the for, for the model to predict uh, cardiovascular related uh, side effects. The way we achieve that mathematically in the model is that in the decoder component of the model that use the learned embeddings to make predictions, uh, that, that model was a model where certain parameters were shared across distinct side effects. So in that way, we were actually able to transfer knowledge and transfer information across side effects. Uh, and really exploring the parameters that the model has um, estimated after the training has completed, it really turned out to be the case that the model has by itself uh, learned that there are these correlations between side effects and it estimated similar submodels for side effects that are more related to each other, where related to each other was quantified as the type of organs, the type of tissues that uh, those side effects uh, are affecting. That's really cool. That's a, that's a really cool finding. Uh, so we, when we've been talking about polypharmacy side effect or side effects in general, we've been kind of talking about a homogenous human population. We've just been saying, like, if you give these two drugs, they will affect you. But we know that these types of things differ significantly, about, you know, based on different types of demographic information. But at the same time, if you try to include this type of demographic information, you take a problem where there's already sparse data and you make it way worse. When you looked at Decagon, or maybe in some of your more recent work, what are your thoughts on considering this type of, because you talked previously about this idea of personalized medicine, do you think that this type of thing can be expanded to make these types of personalized predictions? Absolutely. And one of the substantial limitations of Decagon, the way it was described in the, in the paper, was that it made systems level predictions. And that's fairly naive, right? To say that drug A and B will lead to this side effect. This is the prediction by the model. It will, they will be associated with a particular polypharmacy side effect. But really, that might not be the case for all patients. Um, so there might be some populations of patients where this side effect might be more prominent, might happen more often. And simply prediction that predicting that those side effects at the system's level is really first step towards more or less understanding the problem rather than making predictions that are immediately actionable. Because in a number of follow-up studies where we took predictions by Decagon and then worked with clinical experts at Massachusetts General Hospital at Stanford School of Medicine, when we showed predictions to domain experts, clinical researchers, they immediately asked, well, when should I apply this reasoning? Or when should I look at your prediction? Right. So in one particular validation study, what we did is at Massachusetts General Hospital was to deploy the Decagon model in a way that it is used next to existing drug-drug interaction checkers that doctors are using in the clinic when they are prescribing patients. And then side by side, there are predictions of Decagon. And in order to make predictions more actionable in the sense that while well, doctors can act upon seeing a prediction, they need to be personalized. 
Um, practically, the challenge that arises with that is that you need to have personalized personal data, um, which is, of course, not available in federal adverse event reporting system. So we primarily do that as a follow-up studies with large hospitals or hospital systems that share with us inf information on patient-level data. So in one study at Stanford School of Medicine, we have been looking at uh, ways to design combinatorial drug therapies for prostate cancer that would minimize incontinence as si unwanted side effect and would maximize desired effect of, uh, of, of treatment. And for, for that particular study, uh, of course, we had information about patients, their age, their um, current um, set of drugs that the patients are taking, medical procedures that they had, and that has really helped make predictions more actionable um, in, in, in the sense that the, that the domain expert, when sees a prediction, can, can more readily make an action uh, than simply speculate about that prediction. Um, and, um, I, I think that's really where it, it's really an important problem that we need to um, go to. And um, certainly I can comment here that initially we, we thought of Decagon or like when we when I go around and, and explain to people that we're using federal national adverse event reporting system, you mean people think of oh, that's a big data problem, right? Well, it's a national system of data. Surely it will be large. And it is large. Yes. But at the end of the day, there are only a small number of patients that take a particular combination of drugs. Even a smaller fraction of those patients that are on a particular combination of drugs experience side effect. So when we narrow down, when we go down the funnel, very quickly becomes small data problem. And so it's really important to have these models that can learn and reason over multiple side effects, because this is how we can kind of um, have these uh, increase the power of the models to be able to say, well, there is little, there is actually little data for one particular side effect, but there, we have many, many of those, so we can actually borrow information across side effects. That and that's related to what I've been mentioning before. Um, so there are two challenges here. Really, personalized data requires close collaborations with healthcare systems or with hospitals that where such data exists and can be integrated with predictive models as well as then predictive models need to operate most likely on multiple diseases, multiple side effects at the same time. The way this is operationalized is to transfer learning, pre-training the models on public data, fine-tuning the models using patient-level information, for example. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That I, I particularly like your description of the data that if you look at the number of raw entries, that's probably massive. But again, you know, when you're comparing the search space, it's not 10 to the 60th potential molecule. It's not that big. But for any particular combination, you're going to have a small amount of data. And if you want to partition those entries amongst various demographics, it's very quickly going to become an incredibly sparse problem. Yes. And it's, it is challenging already when processing the national system. Uh, in particular, like the, the kind of observations that we made, which we didn't have a chance to include in the paper, was that there are certain side effects that are associated primarily with one population of people. So certain combinations of drugs are primarily prescribed to, to elderly. And then the kind of side effects that we see are also side effects that one would expect to see in older population. So what this hints at is that almost surely the model might 
be, make, might be making more accurate predictions for certain subpopulations that are well represented in the data, even though we don't know what those subpopulations are. And it might be highly, much more uncertain about predictions for other subpopulations um, that uh, do not oft, are not often prescribed certain drug combinations and then the side effects that those population, subpopulations experience might not pop up as significant in the national birth event reporting system. So doing this patient stratification, or when we would say for when this combination of drug is prescribed to older person, then the kind of side effects we would experience would be those that are more often seen in elderly versus pregnant women, for example. Um, and this is more or less an open question, how more or less on the data side, it's exciting questions about how to share the data on that, how to get the data, like questions of like, how can we do federate computations? Can we do various secure computation schemes to be able to integrate data from different hospital systems? Like lots of lots of questions and exciting research going on here, as well as on the machine learning side of things, right? How do we represent this data in the form of knowledge graphs? Then we need to develop machine learning models for them. We need to be able to train them on large data sets. The data sets are very noisy. They come from different resources, they are biased in different ways, there are batch effects, uh, kind of lots of questions that are open here. Yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great summary of number of open questions that people might think that drug design is a somewhat narrow field, but there's actually so much, there's so much going on. Um, do you have any other comments you'd like to make about this field or about your work? Yeah, so um, I would completely agree with you what you said, with you, we just said, uh, Jacob, that uh, it's a uh, Really, an ex drug development broadly seen. It's an exciting area of research uh, that I think has offered so many interesting challenges that that allow us to really tackle an impactful problems. And at the same time, develop methodology, and that's also what I'm excited, very excited about. Uh, that can have that can impact the way predictive modeling is done today at a really fundamental level. So. Questions related to statistics, scalability of the models, explainability of the models. All these questions are very relevant, or like what we mentioned before, active learning, kind of having AI feedback loops for, for, for these systems where they are deployed in clinical setting or in research experimental wet lab settings. So lots of questions that really are at the frontier of machine learning research um, that need to be solved in order to make these models easily deployable. And at the same time, it's it's really um, it's a great opportunity for computational scientists to contribute to a field that we are not originally trained for. So I'm very excited then because because to be involved in a number of initiatives that, especially during this time, deal with um, questions related to drug development and therapeutics development for COVID nineteen. Um, a couple of I, I can mention at least two of those. One of one is uh, the MIT AI Cures initiative uh, that um, is more closely focused on drug discovery and, and, and what, what we discussed at the beginning of this conversation, um, how to predict properties of molecules, uh, how to then synthesize molecules, how to predict drug-drug interactions based on molecular structure of molecules. Um, and then in another initiative uh, at the Broad Institute and with Laszlo Barabasi at North, Northeastern uh, University, we are, looking, we are really looking at effective ways 
to expedite drug repurposing. So, so really to do drug repurposing at the pandemic scale, right? And the way I motivated drug repurposing was it's much faster than drug development. Yes, it is, but on average, it still takes six years for the repurposed drug to go to be approved. So that's much less than 12 to 13 years, which would be what, which is what it would take for a new drug, but it's not really something that works at a pandemic scale. So, so for example, in the last couple of months since, since March uh, until now, which, which would be, or like till end of June, which is just three months of time, we were able to deploy a, a set of machine learning and network medicine models, make predictions, test those predictions in the wet lab, confirm those predictions in human cells for drugs that might be relevant for COVID-19. And now looking at those predictions in, 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 in silico to computational lens again. So it's really an example of how, when we really all work for the same goal, how can, how can we accelerate drug repurposing concretely, right? Or how can we expedite drug repurposing to make it more suitable for, um, for the situations like the one we have now, where we need to think about doing this at a pandemic scale, either at a much larger scale or much, much faster. And that further motivates the use of uh, computational machine learning models uh, that can expedite um, different processes, different steps of drug development. And we have mentioned many, pro many steps that kind of fall into preclinical, clinical or marketing surveillance stages uh, of working, thinking of drug about drugs. That all sounds incredibly cool. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Zitnek. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you so much for inviting me.